So when our new series called Sick uh, started and we were trying to figure out you know, how we were going to plan it all in these short weeks, we were putting it together and, and, I, and I noticed that the word gluttony or the, the sermon on gluttony was missing. And uh, soon, very quickly soon, uh, it became, great idea, Tim Galley, uh, you should preach on gluttony on your Sunday. And here I am. Gluttony. I mean, who wants to preach on gluttony and... And until tonight, I kind of thought, well, who'd want to listen to a sermon on gluttony? But here we are. I mean, gluttony is just one of those awful-sounding words. I mean, when they were putting words together, they must have gotten together and said to themselves, it should sound like it feels. Ugh. Let's call that gluttony. It's Latin etymology, meaning to gulp down or swallow. A working definition for us tonight would be, gluttony is the overindulgence and overconsumption of food or drink or any earthly item to the point of extravagance or waste. Historically, it's one of the seven deadly sins. It's called also, also called the cardinal sins. And St. Thomas Aquinas wrote quite a bit about it in probably one of the greatest theological works in the Christian tradition called the Summa Theologica. And he, and he reiterates five ways that we can commit gluttony. One is to eat food in excessive quantity. Two, eating food that is too daintily or elaborately prepared. Three, eating food that is too luxurious or exotic or costly. Four, eating at an inappropriate time. And five, eating too eagerly. Now with food... Gluttony happens when the connection between food and its proper purpose is broken. See, food is given to sustain the body, to nourish the body, to enrich communal life, and, and to give pleasure to the idea of taste. It's not there to comfort the isolated or the lonely or to bolster our, our self-image or to be a substitute for prayer. Now, a lot of this stuff relates to food, and especially the, the medieval teachings of, of gluttony. But tonight I want us to see that it's not just about food, it's about the overindulging of our appetite for the things of this world that has become disproportionately out of control, but yet our appetites continue to crave them. So to help us tonight, uh, I have some pictures of gluttons uh, that, that I'd like to show you. Uh, the first is somebody whom I really like. Uh, he is somebody I've been keeping attentive to for many years. Homer Simpson is a glutton. I mean, he is, if you watch the show, he is exactly what a glutton is supposed to do, say, and act like. In a web search, I, I found these two guys admitting, admitting to being gluttons. Uh, they're actually twins participating in a, in a health study on the effects of gluttony and health in relation to twins. And if you look at their plates, they're, they're off to a good start. This woman here is passed out from too much to drink. And this is a form of gluttony. Now again, I, tonight I want us to look past the idea that gluttony is merely a problem for those who are considered to be overweight or drunkards. We cannot reduce gluttony just to be about waste or obesity or alcoholism though those are also important issues. Some who are physically overweight are not gluttons at all, as it turns out. They might have a low metabolism, they might have a glandular issue, or some other health issue. 
And the truth is, there are a lot of people with high metabolisms who are gluttons. Skinny people can be gluttons. But again, gluttony is not just about food or drink. I found another picture of a glutton. This guy is a glutton. It's true. I know him well. One of my vices is I, I am truly a coffee snob. When I cannot find good coffee, I drink tea or water or anything else, but I won't drink bad coffee. And, and one of Aquinas' ideas of gluttony isn't, we, we generally think like, oh, he must drink a lot of coffee, but no, you can only, I, I can only have a particular type of coffee. Now, I, 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 get, I have some good days and bad days with that, and I'm trying to be, be I'm working on that, I should say. I, I also have a, a, um, apparently an obsession with, with um, gray sweaters. Um, my, my wife noticed this about me um, after we got married. She's like, you really only wear four, four colors. Um, you wear gray, dark gray, light gray, <laughs> navy blue, and when you really want to mix things up, you wear white. <laughs> Feeling crazy tonight, guys. Feeling crazy. And I started thinking about this. Like, I remember one time I was going to, uh, I was at the mall for some reason, and I saw these big signs that said, sale, sale, sale. And it was in a, a clothing store that, that I, I kind of like, and I, and I walked in. Um, and, and being, uh, you know, and I, I, I'm raised in an Egyptian household. I'm a second, uh, second generation American Egyptian. And one of the rules of our house is that we don't buy anything for, for full retail. We don't. We buy things on sale. Um, so it is, a, it is awesome when we buy something that was like considered this price at one point and now is on sale. So I walked to the back of the store and I found um, this particular sweater because I was in need of clothing. Um, and I, I walked in and I found this really great sweater that was discounted from like $14,000 to twenty, <laughs> And I had to get it. And it was a gray sweater. And I, and I held it up to myself and, and, and except for the horrible stain of vanity on the mirror, you know, it looked like it was going to fit. I bought it and I put it on, on the, uh, in, in, my, in my awesome collection in the closet, and the gluttony continued. I have three children who I hope to raise in, in, in the church, uh, who I hope love Christ with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, uh, and apparently who I hope to turn into gluttons myself, <laughs> um, uh, like myself, excuse me. So, like, I, I, I took them to Costco. Uh, a few weeks ago, and, and this is part of like our, our, our tradition, we, 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 uh, I, I take them out on my errand running and, and, and so forth, because I know in a few years, the kids won't want to go anywhere with me. So if they can just go anywhere with me now, that would be great. And, I'm, and, and one of my, my, my five-year-old in particular loves the samples that they give at Costco. And, and at this time, I thought like, yo, you know, I can, I can get past the samples because we ate lunch at a great hour, and we'll go, now we're going to Costco. Like, no, 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 I want the samples. I want the samples. You don't even know what the lady behind the toaster oven has. <laughs> and there we were standing in line getting samples. And I'm like, this, this whole Costco thing of like giving out free samples, I understand that it's a marketing ploy. However, it's working on our gluttony because it's free and you can have it even if you don't want it. And why not? So the question that gluttony always asks is, why not? Not, do I need it? Gluttony is about what we unite ourselves to. It is about the habits that we make. It's about the loss of control that, that we suffer from, and this involves idolatry. Because idolatry is forfeiting 
control to something that is lesser than us when we ought to be surrendering to someone who is greater than us. Idolatry is forfeiting control to something lesser than us when we ought to be surrendering control to someone who is greater than us, and that can only be God. That's gluttony. The book of Proverbs contains a number of passages that warn us against gluttony. Like, do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and, tr- and, and drowsiness will clothe them both. Paul writes about gluttony in Philippians. He talks about those whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, and they set their minds on earthly things. Perhaps the very first gluttons were the very first people, Adam and Eve. Now we know that they took the fruit from the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil, and we know that they were committing the sin of pride when they did that. But we could also make the case that they were also committing the sin of gluttony too. Were they not taking more than they needed? In their minds, they believed they could do whatever they wished with God's creation for their own pleasure. Jesus spoke about gluttony. Do you remember the man who built his silos and they were filled with wheat and grain in Luke 12? And he says, And I'll say to my soul, you have many, good, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? That was gluttony. Now, the story I want to focus in on tonight is also found in the book of Luke, and it is the rich man and Lazarus, and you can follow along. It begins in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And by his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in gluttony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us, there's a great chasm has been fixed, and so that those who want to go over from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to me, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. I mean, what a story. As theologian Daryl Bach put it, death is the great equalizer, even the great reverser. After death, the one thing that counts is the heart. Possessions and status symbols are left behind. I mean, what is it that Jesus says in Matthew 20? In the kingdom, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. I mean, what do we see here? We see Lazarus sitting at Abraham's side, which which to us means that he was sitting next to him. 
Uh, it, it, but in the first century audience, they would have understood that Lazarus and Abraham were probably sitting at a table together. There's this confusing translation that, that also has Lazarus was, it was in Abraham's bosom. And we, we picture this gigantic Abraham, you know, and like this little miniature Lazarus, like, you know, like, like right here being cuddled by, by, by Father Abraham. That's actually when translations do more harm than good. What this probably means is that Abraham and Lazarus are sitting at the same table eating. And in the first century audience type of mentality, where we, you didn't eat at a dining room table, you sat on the floor and you lounged. Think of like the Last Supper scenes with like pillows and so forth. And if there's a whole bunch of people and you sat there for hours and you wanted to get to know people, you lounged on the pillows. And sometimes you actually lounged against a person's back that was behind you and you kind of supported each other. How about that? Lazarus, who was like, you know, stuck on, on the street, is now at the head table lounging and sweating basically alongside Father Abraham. We see also the naming of the poor man in the story. We know his name. His name is Lazarus. But what's the name of the rich man? He is unidentified. We see Luke making the very clear case that the level of concern that God has for each poor person, and God is fully aware of their plight. Here's another twist. Is perhaps the, the rich man not named because he represents all of us that can help. Now, this is a sermon on gluttony, but the word gluttony doesn't actually appear in this passage. But I like stories, and I think this is a really helpful one, and I see a whole lot of gluttony here. First is the rich man's refusal to help a poor man at the end of his driveway. And instead of sharing, he hoarded. In fact, the biblical teaching was for farmers not to harvest all their crops, but to leave the crops on the, on the edges of the field so that the poor could come and have them. And this was called gleaning. In this story, the rich man does what? He puts up a gate. That's gluttony. Second, it explains the rich man was wearing purple and fine linen, which is a kind of an odd detail on the surface, but here's what it means. The fine linen is a luxury, okay? And, and you, you probably get that. But the purple dye for this purple robe, the purple dye was very expensive and it was a very time-consuming procedure to get it right. So wearing a purple robe was very much a status symbol. Now is this by itself a sin? Is having a status symbol a sin? I mean, we, we might want to say yes to that, but didn't Jesus have a purple robe? Probably just like this one? What? Jesus had a status symbol? If you remember, Jesus did have a purple robe, and we might assume it was a gift, but would it really be that much of a scandal if he bought it? If you remember, the soldiers cast lots for the purple robe at the crucifixion, remember? Are status symbols wrong? I'll get to that in a few minutes. Third, even in death, the rich man still sees Lazarus as one who should serve him. He still sees him as an errand boy. Let him get me some water. Let him warn my brothers. Let Lazarus keep serving me. Abraham tells him that not even if someone comes back from the dead is it going to help your brothers. Is this true? Are their hearts that sick? Is it fair to speculate that among their diseases is gluttony? Peter Kreeft says this about gluttony. He's a Catholic theologian. He says, The motivation for gluttony is the unconscious self-image of emptiness. I must fill myself because I am empty and worthless. 
Gluttony is trying to fill a spiritual vacuum with a physical remedy. It's like taking penicillin for a broken heart. There's nothing wrong with penicillin, but it does no good for a restless soul. And too much of it can lead to all, other kind, to all kinds of other problems. It's the physical trying to resolve the spiritual. See, overeating is not the issue of gluttony. I mean, we may feel a little twinge of guilt from eating too many chocolates, but M&M's is not going to send you to hell, okay? <laughs> going to an all-you-can-eat buffet is not a sin. Cooking along with your favorite celebrity chef is not a sin. Now, thinking peace is found in what fills your body, that's gluttony. Attending the buffet restaurant of your choice and treating it like as if it were your church, your place of worship, that's gluttony. Treating a celebrity chef like he is your pastor, not, not wise. Now, we don't ever say such things, right? Because it sounds very ridiculous. But the way that we live says these, some of these things. Like, what about our media consumption? Social media gluttons. How many friends, likes, followers, status updates will be enough? As one who loves social media, I have to ask myself that. News media gluttons. What exactly are you looking for hour after hour? Entertainment media gluttons. How many more movies? How many more TV shows? How much more music will really satisfy? Now, is social media bad? Is news media bad? Is entertainment media bad? No, of course not to all these things. With healthy usage, these forms of media are great to stay in touch, to be informed, and to recreate. Unhealthy usage, that leads to addiction. And that leads to abandoning community in favor of our own isolation. Well, what about the other stuff? What about clothing and books and media and art and gadgets and pictures and luxuries and all those little souvenirs of me? Are we hoarding? Do we ever share? Do we accumulate and not give? It's when we overindulge on the things of the world that our appetites grow even bigger and that our souls starve and we find ourselves losing control. I was reading a book about this, and, and the author said, the, inter the interesting thing about gluttony is that it amplifies each of the other sins. He said, pride longs for applause, but gluttony needs to be a diva. Envy covets what others have, but gluttony counts every insignificant detail. Gluttony, gluttony is the salt when the greedy taster spoils one million dollars isn't enough, you need 10 million. Five-year-old wine isn't enough, it must be 15 years old and French. Lust wants other, another woman, gluttony wants them all. Wrath wants revenge, gluttony wants the infliction of it to be creatively painful. At its most demonic, gluttony amplifies the other sins, enhancing their self-destructive behavior. Aren't you glad you came tonight? In one sense, gluttony is about our bodies, our need for more experiences, more DVDs, more vacations, more clothing, more collectibles, more stuff. But like all other expressions of sin, gluttony is primary about, primarily about separating ourselves from others and from God. Gluttony is, is this, like this, this temptation that draws us away from the things that we were meant to do 
and it also withholds things from people who are in need. This was the problem of the rich man and Lazarus. So, now that we understand a little bit more about this sickness, how can we be healed? Or, is the question that we should be asking right now is, is this really a problem? I mean, I'm personally a cynic, and, and, and is there any, is, are there any cynics in this room except me? We got one, two, all right, we got a couple. I mean, the cynic's mind kind of starts working a little bit after you hear a sermon like this. And, like, you know, we feel a little discouraged. We feel a bit down. We say, okay, you're a nice guy and all. You've created this big problem for us, and now you're going to sell us a solution. But is this really a problem? I mean, it feels like the necessary question that we should want to bother with is, do we really need to overcome gluttony, or did you just kind of make this whole thing up, or, or this, this Bible of yours? I mean, there's a lot of bad things in life. Do we need to concern ourselves with this stuff? I mean, I have to eat. I have to drink. I have to use stuff. And if you make me feel bad for every single thing that I do, I'm going to go crazy. And religion feels like one of those things that's like, that that's what they want you to do. They just want you to feel bad about everything. And how about this rich man and Lazarus? I mean, you know, can't you, like, spin any story? I mean, how do we know that the rich man was really a bad guy? What if he was a really nice guy? What if he was charming? What if he always had people over at his house, and he, like, he, he, like had a lot of dinner parties and told great jokes? And how do we know Lazarus wasn't just really annoying? Maybe he was a bit lazy. Maybe the rich man offered him a job at one point, and Lazarus said, I, you know what, I, I got all these sores, I really can't help. Okay, fine, fine, just sit out there. I mean, how do we know that? Now, only you can decide. But consider this about gluttony. The longer we live, the longer we chase after the things that we want, the, 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 the restlessness, you know, it starts catching up with you a little bit. All that wandering, all, all the filling, but all the emptiness, right? The loneliness, the staleness, the frustration, the trying and the failing it all of and the failing of it all the whole thing of it aren't we tired of hearing the groans from our starving souls because that feels real to me i am tired of buying gray sweaters i am tired of going to costco again i'm tired of all the things that that clog up my heart like these deadly sins that we're discussing, like greed and envy and pride and lust and sloth and anger and gluttony. Our series is called Sick, and Jesus offers healing, and that interests me. So how can we experience this healing that Jesus offers? We've been saying that to every deadly sin, there is a corresponding lively virtue and a healthy habit. So the corresponding lively virtue to gluttony is moderation. Overcoming gluttony by its living virtue is moderation. I think I have a slide of that. Moderation is taking what you need. Moderation is leaving some for the one behind you. Moderation is, here, you take the last one. Moderation is, allows us to be mindful of our consumption and of our needs 
and, uh, and of our indulgences. Moderation allows us to give out of our abundance and out of our scarcity. There is no hoarding. In moderation, we find the beauty of simplicity. In moderation, we find the space that God will provide. That's moderation. Then there is a healthy habit of fasting. As you probably know, Jesus fasted regularly. Most notably, for 40 days in the wilderness prior to the start of his preaching ministry. And we borrow this idea of, of fasting for four days for Lent. Now, fasting is when we abstain from a need or something that gives us joy to dedicate more time and attention to God. Fasting gets us recentered. We can fast for meals and use that time in prayer. God nourished me so that I would know what Jesus, what Jesus meant when he said, Man does not live by bread alone. We can fast from media. Lord, I find my joy in you. We can fast from all sorts of things and let God inform your conscience. And I encourage you to give fasting a try if you haven't already. There is a lot of strength found in sacrifice. But in fasting, there's also feasting. In fact, it's a rhythm, the rhythm of fasting and feasting. If you notice the Christian calendar, it has a time of fasting for Advent, and then a time of feasting for Christmas. Then there's another fast for Lent, and then there's a feast of Easter. And in between those times are what are called the ordinary times. And different particular traditions, church traditions, have filled them with certain other observances. And the whole idea between fasts and feasts and other observances, they, they're used to create a rhythm. I want to warn you as you pursue moderation, as you pursue simplicity and fasting, that you don't become a legalist. And the solution to that is feasting. Feast when it's time to feast so you, so you don't become a Pharisee. There is a time to celebrate, to enjoy the richness of what God has provided. And we do this very well when we gather with the people that we love and we throw a party. And we have great food and great drink and a lot of laughs. And it, that is a feast. Remember that Jesus fasted and feasted. In fact, he feasted to the point that his enemies called him a glutton and a drunkard, right? And do you know what he did in response? He kept fasting and feasting. And in fact, he was confronted one time, and they said, and they said why, why, aren't, why aren't you fasting? And you and your disciples, why aren't you fasting? And he said, well, nobody at a wedding fasts, right? They feast. What about being a foodie? Any foodies in the house? Any cynics who are, are, are foodies also? Yeah. I believe that Jesus very well could have been a foodie. I mean, he's living in the Middle, Middle East. He loves fish. He loves analogies about fish. He comes from a big family. He feeds the 5,000. Yeah, I think Jesus very well could have been a foodie. Is it heretical for me to speculate that Jesus sits in heaven sometimes craving hummus? Maybe. I still get caught up on, on Jesus changing the water to wine. And it was good wine. It was the, the Greek, and, and don't listen to anyone who says that it was juice. There's a Greek word for juice. It's called trucks. In the Bible, it uses the word oinos, wine. And he made it good. I think the lesson here is to enjoy the fruits of creation 
as Jesus did. The rhythm of fasting and feasting. And what about the scene when Mary anointed his feet with that really expensive perfume and Judas was about to stop her and say, no, we should sell that perfume and give the money to charity. But Jesus didn't stop her. He said, no, she is honoring me. Again, this is part of the rhythm of feasting and fasting. There's a place for all things. There's a place for the simple and there's a place for the luxurious. It's why we have engagement rings and big wedding celebrations and these fancy honeymoons. And then a few weeks later, we clip coupons. (laughs) It's why going out to eat is a good thing, but it's also why giving money to others is also a needed and good thing. It helps in our being centered. Would Jesus have an iPhone? Maybe. I doubt, I doubt he would have had a droid because no one can get those things to work. Although, being a miracle worker, maybe he would have been able to pull it off. I don't know. Yes, just like that. But often we confuse simplicity for the lack of technology and consumption. And, I want, and as one who enjoys technology, technology is a tool. It is something cultivated for our hands to use. But technology is not an extension of our bodies. That's when it becomes a problem. That's when it becomes gluttonous. So if losing our iPhone or unplugging ourselves from social media or losing our record collection feels like an apocalypse to you, maybe you have overindulged on these things. Every, what, we, what we discover is that the world is filled with great things because God loves great things and God blesses us with great things. But every great thing in this life is corruptible. So overconsuming anything in this life can lead to gluttony. Peter Kreft says, Only the knowledge of God's love for me can fill that emptiness. It makes me a solid self and it gives me ultimate worth. So we ask ourselves tonight, do we want to get well? Do we want to stop being sick? I mean, what is it that controls us? What is it that we need to put back in its proper place? Are these indulgences that we tend to enjoy from time to time, are they robbing our souls from life? Are we starving? Friends, I'd like to encourage you tonight to find the rhythm of moderation, to find the healthy habits of fasting and feasting and being centered And when our souls are properly filled with Christ, we have no overindulgences. And so may we not be gluttons indulging in our own appetites, but may we be lovers of God and others who hunger and fill their souls in the same way that Jesus did. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you grateful for how wonderful and amazing your world is. We thank you, Lord, for for things like coffee and beer and wine and hummus and all these great things that we enjoy with our friends. But help us, Lord, not, not to get obsessed with them. Help us not to lose control to these things. Help us not to have idols. Help us not to be gluttonous. Father, we recognize that we are sick and we reach out to you for healing. We ask, Lord, that as we reflect for these next few minutes that you would bring things to mind in our lives that we need to change, that you would work in our hearts and that we would let you work, and that once again we would leave this 
place of worship has changed people. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.